0: Today, I am so pleased to welcome to the podcast a fellow writer and a tennis fan. Yes, I had to get that in there. Isaac yeah. Butler, co-author of The World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America, which NPR.org named One of the best books of 2018, Isaac Butler's writing has appeared in New York Magazine, Slate, The Guardian, American Theater, and other publications. For Slate, he created and hosted Lend Me Your Ears, a podcast about Shakespeare and politics, and he currently co-hosts Working, a pod dedicated to the creative process. Additionally, a director whose work has been seen on stages across the country. He is the co-creator of Real Enemies, a multimedia exploration of conspiracy theories in the American psyche, which was not only named one of the best live events of 2015 by the New York Times, but has also been adapted into a feature-length film an MFA graduate in creative nonfiction from the University of Minnesota, who teaches theater history and performance at the New School and elsewhere. Most recently, he became the author of the richly detailed, utterly fascinating book, The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, which is what we're here to talk about today. Isaac, thank you so much for being here and congratulations on your books. Well-deserved success. How are you doing and how's everything been going with the book release and tour?
1: Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's very exciting. Uh, um, I'm excited yes. to be here. The release of the book has been a lot of fun. Uh, people seem to be really responding to it. I've gotten to be a guest on a lot of wonderful podcasts and, and stuff like that. And uh, it's just really great, you know, um, I think the story of The Method and its sort of century-long history is a really fascinating and fun one. You know, it's full of big characters and high-stakes drama and backstage skullduggery yes. and, and stuff like that. But also, you know, I, I wouldn't have written it if I didn't think that acting wasn't important. You know what I mean? Like acting is important. I think it's culturally important. It's a, it's a way that we conceptualize what it is to be a human being, how it is to exist in the world and stuff like that. And so, you know, I was really hopeful in writing this book that I would sort of intervene in some of those conversations. You know, the book would be something that was helping to shape the way that we talk about this thing that I think is really important and that's starting to happen. And that's been very gratifying
0: yeah absolutely you're a cultural critic this is your passion for sure i just found it so remarkable it's a great work of nonfiction. i have several questions but i think a good place to begin might be with you i know from your bio you are a theater director and a teacher yet as you wrote about in your book you began your professional career as an actor and one who had their own conflicted relationship with the method Which is, for those listening, of course, the acting style associated with Stanislavski, Strasbourg, Kazan, Brando, and the Actor Studio, which seemed to reach the height of its popularity in the 1950s. However, its earliest roots go back much further into turn-of-the-century Russia, all of which you chronicle so brilliantly here. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I just, I adored this book. And lately, with all the stories involving outrageous behavior with Jared Leto and others, as you well know, because you've recently become like the official source on setting the record straight, method (laughs) acting has become, in people's minds, Just another synonym for the word asshole, which is not at all what it means in that respect. It's kind of become like a catch-all term, similar to auteur theory as well, but that's a whole other podcast. (laughs) You had as a younger man, and you do continue to have some of your own reservations with the acting approach. I was just wondering if you would talk a little bit about your background, including perhaps your earliest experiences with the method, and why you did feel it was such a worthwhile subject to explore,
1: yeah, sure. um yeah, I do feel like now anytime like Jared Leto burps in an interview, someone wants me to talk about it, so you know that's good that's, that's that's' you know the that's a problem of success, yeah. uh, and I'm happy to do so so um but my own experience with the ideas of stanislavsky the method has its roots in the you know theories techniques and ideas of uh the russian actor uh director and impresario konstantin stanislavsky who developed this thing called the system yes. uh that was his way of um, trying to figure out kind of what acting was and how it worked and how you could teach someone to be good at it and to be good at it reliably, because one of the weird things about acting is of course, you have to be good at it at the appointed time, you know, what the at 8:15 when your character makes the entrance, <laughs> you have to be good at it at exactly that moment. It's not like writing or painting or composing where you can kind of yeah. sit around all day. And then if you get those couple sentences at 3 p.m., you know, you can maybe yeah. feel like you accomplished something. And so he's really the first guy to look at the interior mechanism of acting. What's going on inside the human being that causes them to create kind of um, great performances. Um, The emphasis in his early work on the system is internal. um, Not because he believed the internal and the external were separate. He actually believed they were connected very deeply. It's that he was a very well-trained he had a very well trained body and voice. He was a dancer. He was an opera baritone. He had taken, he had studied that stuff for years. He just felt that this part of the acting mechanism had been neglected, and he um, was really interested. You know, kind of the mountaintop he was trying to reach was this thing that he called a perestroika, and perestroika is a Russian word that loosely translates to experiencing or re-experiencing it's the moment when the actor's consciousness and the character's fictional consciousness kind of collide, you know, the actor doesn't fully become the character, but they're sort of able to think what the character thinks, feel what the character feels and still, you know, remain in character and do their job. And, his ideas really revolutionized what we think of as as acting. You know that was not what people thought good acting was prior to Stanislavski, but it's absolutely what we think good acting is today, and it's what we've thought it was ever since. Particularly after it comes to the United States and becomes sort of transformed into the method from the 1930s to the 1950s. So. When I was taking acting classes as a kid, and that was a long preamble, I know, but when I was taking acting classes as a kid, I was a child professional actor in DC. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what we're going towards. That's what we're trying to help me do is, is para javanya, it's really experiencing these things. And one of the tools for that was um, something called effective memory, which maybe you've heard some version of it if you're listening to this, but it has to do with. Um using your own personal experience to kind of trigger the emotional an emotional reality that is akin to what the characters is, right? So if you want to yeah. understand how Hamlet is mourning his father, one of the ways to do that is to sort of make yourself re-experience mourning. Um uh using the sensory details associated with your memories of mourning. So my dad's still alive. So this is completely made up. But if I was playing Hamlet, I might try to think about being in the hospital room when my dad yeah. died, but I'm not thinking about what it looked like. I'm not thinking about the story of it. I'm thinking about like what did the room smell like? What did mm-hmm. it sound like? What did his hands feel like? And you sort of explore those sensory triggers until you find one that sort of summons the feeling. And then you Kind of create a shorthand in your head that allows you to get there faster. That's one of the key techniques that Stanislavski pioneered, um, and that that got became an even in bigger deal when Strasberg is adapting his theories. So the exercise that we did in acting class around this had to do with bringing in an object that was of deep emotional significance, because maybe that object could work as a kind of trigger point. You know, yeah, and. Um, People brought in all sorts of stuff. It was really fascinating uh, because you also got to see how emotion really worked because people Mm -hmm. don't experience emotion in the stock way that actors often display it. You know, they're not always bawling, sometimes they're doing some weird (laughs) thing with their hands or, you know, whatever it is. And so I brought in the obituary of a friend who had died of AIDS not that long before. Mm. Uh, He was older, I was 16. He was in his 40s. You know, he worked at the theater that I was taking classes at. And uh, I just lost it. I just completely lost. It. I was bawling. I was, you know, yeah. I, I was incoherent. I was blubbering. You know, it it was it was too much. Yes. <laughs> the teacher kind of helped me land the plane very quickly after that. But you know, it was a it was a weird moment of like, you know, how had I gone and done that to myself? How was that possible? It was so, you know, powerful. Um, so quickly. And so that was one of the first moments when I really had a lot of questions about these theories and what they would mean
0: yeah and the health of it and having to do that yeah well the health of
1: it the health of it as i talk about in the intro of the book the health of it really became a big deal when i was in college so when i was in college i was in this production of um eric bogosian's talk radio which if you know you you might know the oliver stone movie Mm -hmm. talk radio the play is even sort of more intense in that If you're playing the Eric Bogosian part in that play, which is what I was playing, you're sitting there on stage as a talk radio host, chain smoking for like 70 minutes. And then you have a nervous breakdown for like ten minutes, and then the oh plays out. Like that's that's the whole play. You never leave the set. You know, you're just there. <laughs> you're really. And this was a student production. We had two weeks of rehearsal. Director who had never worked with actors before. You know, it was so. I yeah. really went into kind of all that training I had had, and just dug into sort of every shitty, insecure, mean, mm-hmm. pained self-loathing part of myself and dug all that stuff out and then brought it out every night in the performance while also really chain smoking real cigarettes so i was sort of making myself physically and mentally ill every night and at the end of the run of performances for that show i was just like i can't fucking do this anymore
0: like I, i just
1: i can't do that anymore and i actually stopped pursuing acting seriously and switched to directing almost overnight when that show closed
0: Yeah, I found that really fascinating. And you don't even think about what that would do to you to have to access that well of emotion. Uh, You also open with the story of uh, Frances McDormand on the set of Blood Simple. And she was new at doing this. And Joel Cohen hadn't really worked with actors before and knew that he couldn't be asking her to put herself through this again and again and again. And yeah, one of your most beautiful sections. I mean, the whole book is really philosophical. It's very rich. It's one I'm going to need to read again. I actually bought it twice. I'm that nerdy. I have it. That's great. Physical version. And then I also had the electronic version because I'm like, I'll be consulting it down the road. I know. So, yeah, I loved it. But one of the real beautiful sections was when you were talking about, I actually shared it on Twitter this morning Stanislavski's views on what is art as the manifestation of feelings conveyed externally and talking about how art is a means of communion. Highest goal is unifying humanity through the loftiest and best feelings that people have attained in life or trying to make sense of life. And, you know, it's, it's an act of faith essentially. And you talk about the religious side of it and yeah, I, I can't imagine just going for it. Uh, night after night, putting yourself through that. Uh yeah. My God.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, you know, Stanislavski gets those ideas from largely from Tolstoy and from yes. this uh, very famous Russian critic, uh Viserion Belinsky. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Tolstoy and Belinsky really view art as having this holy purpose, you know, yeah. um, that, that it's unifying humankind. It is illuminating, you know, even when you're, portraying dark stuff on stage it's about activating the best parts of us it's connecting yeah. us as a people and you know i'm not a religious person but i agree no, with you me i mean that's yeah. part of what i think is really beautiful about art stanislavski was a religious person there's some mm-hmm. debate about this in stanislavski studies but uh i think he pretty clearly was a fairly devout orthodox russian christian russian mm-hmm. orthodox christian his entire life um you know, he had hidden icons in his house under Stalin and, you know, he would sign all, or, you know, he would begin all of his letters with this sort of like in the name of God and his son, who, you know, (laughs) know, so, um, but, uh, he really took the religious angle of it seriously. There's a bunch of ideas in the system that sort of come from Russian orthodoxy. Uh, there's terms that come from Russian Orthodox Christianity. Uh, but also, you know, he really believed that the, that the job of the actor was a sacred one, that you were almost like a holy knight, which is part of what could make him a difficult person to to work with. Because (laughs) if you um, were late for rehearsal or you didn't know your lines or you were being a dick to your fellow cast members, that to him wasn't just bad workplace behavior. That was sacrilege. You were betraying the most important calling that Mm -hmm. a human being could have, which was to make art. And you know, he really... Uh, would get furious with people when that happened.
0: Yeah, I am not a religious person either, but I was finding it really intriguing because I think for an actor, the most important thing is humanism and empathy and kind of uh, wanting to make sense of the world. And when you were talking about Stanislavski and getting all of these ideas from Tolstoy and religion and others, Kind of reminded me of back in film school researching uh, the dogma filmmakers and when they put mm-hmm. together that, you know, list of their commandments and how uh, they were looking at art as sort of the holy. And I found that to be a cool link as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting what dogma is trying to do in the dogma 95 movement yes. and their. They have more of a sense of humor about it. Yes, than, they do. Um, Stanislavsky yeah. and Nemirovich. says, like if you listen to that Thomas Vintonberg episode of Team Deacons, where he talks <laughs> about writing, writing those, uh the, writing that manifesto, he's very funny about it. Yeah. Like, you know, we were trying to be, we were trying to be kind of punky about it.
0: Exactly. But,
1: you know, when Stanislavsky and Nemirovich Donchenko found the Moscow art theater, they write a list of aphorisms as well, one of which is among the most famous. In theater history, there are no small parts, only small actors from that first meeting of theirs. Mm -hmm. And they're both, they're trying to get to the same place that Dogma 95 is, which is more realistic, more immediate, more human art mm-hmm. dogma does it by trying to strip all the artifice out of cinema right yes and,
0: exactly and
1: you know you see a movie like celebration just an absolute work of genius you're like yes oh, i see why you're doing this yes you know with stanislavsky and namorovich danchenko they were trying to usher in a new great era of uh, immediacy for theater in russia they did it through different means for example Stanislavski's sets were in incre- and productions were unbelievably ornate, the ornateness of them, uh, in those early years of the Moscow art theater, you know, I've read that they've published some of his production scores in English. And, you know, when you mm-hmm. read them, they're just like shocking how detailed they are. Um, and you look at the set designs cause he was also a visual artist. He was really a polymath. His set designs are incredibly complicated. He designed them with this guy named Sainan, who is also a, an amazing painter and, um. But they were trying to go for their version of a higher level of verisimilitude, their version of more literary, their version of more immediate, and overturn their existing order, which had to do with stock sets, plays that were thrown together with only a few rehearsals in a very kind of grandiose, declamatory acting
0: style. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And in chronicling all of that, I learned so much that I had never heard about uh, Stanislavski before. One of the most impressive things I thought about the book is like with the very best cultural nonfiction works, including Dana Stevens' recent Buster Keaton bio cameraman as well. Isn't that book good? Oh, I loved it so much. Cameraman, it's so lovely.
1: I had so much fun reading that. Sorry to interrupt. I just, you know, Dana's a good friend and it's been really wonderful that our books came out within a week of each other. We've done joint book events. It's been really great to be able to go through this experience with her.
0: Yes. I was so honored to have her on as well. So I'm talking to... Two geniuses. I'm very, very lucky. Yes. But just like with your book, it managed to tell us so much about not only the particular subject that you were uh, focusing on, but also American world history as well, especially world history in this. And considering that the roots of the method began in Russia and you could chronicle all those figures that we've been mentioning along with the coming revolution global unrest and war i can't imagine how much research that you must have done just on those early sections even not including the rest of the book when you got into the actor studio or the group theater Mm. all of that so i would love to know how long did it take you to write the method how did you balance all of the research and writing were you chapter ahead section ahead and what was the process like
1: Mm, that's that's a great question you know I'll I'll start it with a funny story. My daughter who's seven, my daughter's in first grade and um, she she comes up to me uh, a few months ago and she goes, Dada, how long did it take you to uh, write the method? And I said, well, from, you know, really starting work on it, like Mm -hmm. really working on it. So not the proposal, which is its own research process, but really working on the book through to when the book came out, was about three years. Why do you ask, sweetie? Right? And she Mm -hmm. goes, oh, hmm. you know, um, we're writing books in in class. I I just finished my first book. It, uh, you know, it took me three days.
0: Oh, and I I was like, so so she's like
1: trying to be bashful about the fact that she was a better more prolific (laughs) author than her father. Um, So I, I just, I think that's so funny, but yeah, so, so the bulk of the writing uh, the bulk of the writing was like two and a half years, I guess, and they're two okay. a little over two years and then there's all the once it's accepted for production, there's all the production stuff you know, doing the end notes, doing fact checking, getting the photo permissions yes. there's some rewrites. there's a bunch of rewrites between the galley and the final version. there's probably I mean most of them are tiny like this comma was in the wrong place or whatever, but True. there's probably an uh, you know, there's a few hundred changes between the galley and the final version. Yeah. Um, uh, particularly in the notes, when I first did the notes, they were a mess and I had to redo them. And, you know, anyway, I'm just saying there's like, there's, um, there. so there's a lot of work in the production process, but the actual like writing of the book, the research and primary writing of the book is about two and a half years, I would say. And um, I wrote it in order from beginning to end.
0: Okay, With the exception
1: of the introduction and the afterward, which were written mm-hmm. after the whole thing was done, um, the intro. My first introduction was scrapped and completely rewritten after my editor read it, and he was like, "This makes your introduction makes absolutely no sense. You have to." <laughs> and you know, uh, um, that's in some ways the part of the the book that was rewritten the most. I probably, I think we had three different introductions before we landed on mm-hmm. the the one that's in the book. Um, the first part. I had a very bizarre and somewhat ornate process for the first part that I did not repeat for the second and third part. So the first part, okay, I would do this, and, and keep in mind because I wrote the proposal, I had an idea of the whole thing. Like I had to, you know, I had True. to give an overview yeah. of the whole. Thing. Okay. So, um, what I would do for the proposal is I would spend a month on e- Or sorry, what I did for part one was I would spend a month on each chapter. And for the first two weeks, I would research the chapter. And for the third week, I would outline the chapter, okay, very detailed in a very, very detailed outline.
0: Mm-hmm. And for
1: the the um fourth week, I would take I bought an iPad for this reason. I would um set the iPad to work offline mode and then turn it to. Airplane mode. So I just had the outline.
0: Smart. Yeah.
1: And I would bring it to a coffee shop in my neighborhood with a legal pad of paper and a pen. And I would handwrite the chapter. And then okay. the last few days of the month were spent typing up whatever I handwrote. Yeah. Um, and I would do that. And each chapter, you know, it's like you'd start each month being like, this isn't enough time to do it. And then magically it would get done at the end of each month. So that was part one. And I was doing that in part because I was just getting sucked into this zone with my computer where I couldn't get anything done. It was really, you know, being so many distractions. So I, yeah. yeah, But then once I was like kind of deep in it. Then uh for part two, in part because the characters are sort of the same people throughout part two for the most part. Yeah. Um, I did a, a just an incredible amount of research for part two all at once, and then wrote it all at once. And then I repeated okay. a somewhat similar process for part three. But the big thing that changed in part three was the pandemic. The pandemic started right when I was working, began work on part three. And so I had to get an extension on the deadline, you know, Mm -hmm. I had to do a bunch because I was at that point, an almost full-time stay at home dad for the first month of the pandemic. And then we moved out of New York and in first with my mother-in-law and then with my parents, so we could get some childcare. And so I was just sort of anything I could do to get work done. I was doing it. so part three had a much more chaotic, uh, uh, process and somewhere in there actually before before I did part three, I revised part one and sent it to my editor because in asking for an extension for a deadline, it, it helps if you have yeah. something to show for so it. So it's was like, yep. Hey, this is what I've done so far. And so I also had his notes kind of in the back of my head as I wrote part three.
0: Yeah. I, I was thinking as I was reading, you could have made any one of those sections, like its own book. I mean, there are books written yeah. about
1: the subject matter of each chapter of the book. Yeah. I mean, some of my some of the some of the chapters are knitting together stuff that is the subject of multiple books into you know, 15 pages or whatever, and trying to do it in a way that does the subject matter justice, but is still fun to read. Is you know, it's the real challenge of doing a work when you're you know have that much synthesis going on.
0: Yeah. And the research is massive and it's all interesting. As I was going through, I would accidentally click something on Kindle and it would take me to your citation of where this was coming from. And it was like, wow, then that opened up a new thing and a new rabbit hole and a new, I love it. Well,
1: you know, that's part of the fun of reading nonfiction for me is being able to go down all of those, all of those rabbit holes. So it's nice to be able to leave that, leave that to switch metaphors, trail of breadcrumbs for, for readers.
0: Well, were there any surprises that you made along the way, either in the information you discovered, whether in research interviews or just how you wrote it and how the book took shape that led you into directions you may not have been expecting like originally? I know you had a good book proposal. And also, do you have any advice that you would like to offer those who are interested in writing something that does combine history with the performing arts along this same uh, blueprint or same ballpark here?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say that I was always being surprised. I mean, I I, yeah, I don't I don't say that to dodge the it. question, but you know, I when I had to do the press packet for the book, that was one of the questions the publicist asked me. I was like I sort of don't know how to answer this because I feel like every day yeah. I was learning something new and that's part of what was so exciting about it, you know. Inspiring. Um and and so much fun. I mean, this is what I'll say. I'll say a number of things. Anytime you're writing a book, you're committing to a subject matter for a very long period.
0: Yes. Time,
1: you know, and so it needs to be something Rich and fascinating enough to you that you will constantly be renewed by all the cool shit you're discovering. So if you don't yeah. think that you're going to be discovering cool shit all the time, it's probably mm-hmm. not the right subject matter for a book because you need that to feed you and keep you alive. You know, uh, yeah. if, if the subject, I mean, there's going to be days where you hate the book. It's your job. You know, there are days exactly. you hate your job. Um, uh, but but making sure that you find something that has that kind of room for surprise and delight for you, the writer will make it much easier for you to create that sensation in the reader. So for, you know, like, I don't know. So I just felt like I was discovering stuff all the time, whether it was stuff about Stanislavski and his personality, you know, because he's a very weird guy <laughs> um, yeah. uh, or, um, you know, uh, uh, just how the Russian theater worked. I didn't know a lot about how the Russian theater worked before this, you mm-hmm. know, uh, uh, or how, particularly how it worked after the revolution, um, you know, Richard Boleslavsky was a really fascinating character whose yes. books I had read, but whose life I knew nothing about. And his life is totally fascinating. There's actually all sorts yeah. of stuff. Yeah. Oh, didn't
0: the revolution the thing with Poland. Yeah. My God. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, to some extent, we have these theories in the United States because Richard Boleslavsky had to flee the Soviet Union. Well, it wasn't called the Soviet Union yet, but he had to mm-hmm. flee. You know, he had to flee Russia, and, and um, uh, the way he did that is its own fascinating story. He was a World War One veteran yeah he was a sort of inveterate womanizer he was uh you know uh um he was polish but he hid that he was polish from people my favorite part
0: yeah yeah nobody had any idea he could speak the
1: language yeah exactly um you know he also at the end of his life had a interesting career directing movies you know um uh so anyway I just feel like there was constantly stuff I was discovering, but the most fun once I got into the 20th century was discovering actors whose work I hadn't known that well before, you know, like yeah. Kim Stanley, who's a genius only made six movies. One of which mm-hmm. we're going to talk about today. Um, you know, John Garfield, I think is a shared favorite actor of ours yeah. whose work I was largely unfamiliar with outside of the postman always rings twice before starting working on the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, Joe Van Fleet, another actor we're talking about today, you know, like, like discovering those kinds of folks um, uh, and that kind of work uh, was, was really a lot of fun. That was probably the most fun part of the process.
0: Yeah. When you're passionate, it's going to shine through. There's nothing more exciting than talking to somebody about something that they love because it's infectious for sure. But in thinking about method acting, of course, there are so many iconic figures and performances that come to mind. And I know recently you've been asked to discuss several of these, especially the work of Marlon Brando, who figures prominently in the book. And in one of my favorite moments in your book, he impresses a house full of actors and artists when he shows up and is the only one who knows how to fix the broken toilet. That was great. I also loved your thoughtful, memorable analysis of actors like Rod Steiger and Warren Beatty and beyond. I kept finding myself jotting down more titles that I wanted to check out Mm, for the first time yeah, like his Marty. I found it on YouTube. Can't wait to watch. And uh, needless to say, I've been very excited for today's episode, which finds us taking a closer look at a diverse, largely overlooked and or forgotten quartet of movies, which Isaac selected, including in chronological order, Four Daughters from 1938, 1960s Wild River, Paris Blues, which was made a year later, and Francis from 1982. Though they vary in terms of qualities, I'm sure we'll get get into all four prominently feature and or were made by figures associated with the method or in the case of our last film in particular comment on the history that is chronicled in his fascinating book diving into the films one by one we'll begin with the earliest one a deceptively simple unassuming warner brothers romance about four members of a musical family which directed by Casablanca's Michael Curtis, first introduced the world to handsome character actor John Garfield, who from his first scene in Four Daughters appears as if he wandered in from a completely different set altogether accidentally, and he blows everyone else off the screen. Isaac, I loved what you wrote about John Garfield's life and his career in The Method, and I thought you were particularly eloquent about him in this movie, so I'm going to let you provide a little more context for his debut and the impact of it in four daughters
1: yeah you know four daughters is a curious film i think i mean yes. i think if you care about acting thing it's a movie you should definitely see and if you don't really care about acting it it's a little complicated or right i mean you could do worse it's very pleasant it's a pleasant 90 minutes of movie watching you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um michael curtis and uh directed it who also directed casablanca yeah you know uh it's john garfield's film debut and i'll talk about him in a second but it is also written by uh, written by julius epstein one of the writers is julius epstein is of course one of the writers of casablanca and it's directed by casablanca's director um, it is not, it is no Casablanca. I want to be very no, clear. No. Uh, but, and it has Claude Rains in it. I mean, that's one of the fun things about the studio oh, period. Yes. Is you keep seeing these people get combined together. and recombined yeah. into movie after movie. Um, so Four Daughters, I mean, it, it's such a sweet little piece of, of fluff, right? It's about this, this you know, classical music. Uh, I guess he's a conductor, right? Uh, played by Claude mm-hmm. Rains named Adam Lemp and he has these four daughters uh Priscilla Lane plays um Ann Lamp and Rosemary Lane plays Kay Lamp and Lola Lane so it's the Lane sisters play Thea plays Thea Lamp and uh, you know and uh so he has these four daughters and they each find the right man and get married. That's all the movie is. That's all it is. It barely has any conflict until John Garfield shows up. And then (laughs) when John Garfield shows up, it just becomes this totally different movie. So one of them, Priscilla Lane's character is engaged to this sort of, you know, very nice. All the men are very nice guy named Felix Dietz, who's a composer. And he brings into town his best friend from school. Um, Mickey Borden, who's played by John Garfield, to help him do some arranging, some orchestrating on his new songs. Mm-hmm. And Mickey Borden is the exact opposite of all of these people, right? He is clearly urban and ethnic. We learn that yes. his original last name is the Hungarian Bulgar. They won't say he's Jewish, but, you know, John Garfield changed his name for yeah. Julius Garfinkel. Clearly, they're <laughs> like, he's a Jew. He's like chain-smoking. He's sort of rumpled in this Columbo-ish way when he, like, he really shows... Yeah. The Feels like his clothes were just taken out of a dryer and he threw them on and ran all his hands <laughs> you know, um, and Garfield just shows up and he is so much more alive and present and in the moment yeah. and giving a very modern performance in what is a really decidedly is. not modern movie, because what's going on is everyone else is obeying the pre-existing studio system rules of acting. They all have their types and they're all acting in relationship to their, their types. And in fact, what type they are is a frequent subject of dialogue within the movie. And John Garfield is just doing none of that. John Garfield is playing an actual character. He's not, Parlaying himself. He's playing an actual character. He sort of has all this invented, complicated stage business where he's constantly kind of stealing things from people and manhandling them and smoking other people's cigarettes and drinking into yes. this mess. And He's unbelievably beautiful in this kind of angsty, doomed New York, you know, dangerous artist way. And in fact, he and Priscilla Lane's character, I mean, they don't elope. It's it's weird. It's almost for a for a code picture. There's a there it almost gets kind of sexually frank. They leave for the city, right? Yeah. And they live in the city for a while. And it's very clear that they're living in sin together. Uh, and then eventually he dies in a car crash and she just comes back home and marries the nice guy that she should have married all along. Now, <laughs> I know. You know, it's a it's like the movie doesn't know what to do. With him, And so they have to kill him off because the world becomes too unstable once he enters it. Um, and his performance, it's just, it's incredible. It feels like something from much later in the 20th century, he went back in a time machine and got inserted in this kind of stodgy older film. It's, it's a truly brilliant turn and it actually made, uh, it really is responsible for the movie being the huge success it was. It was an unexpected hit. It was nominated for several Oscars. They made two sequels to it. Now, of course, the problem with those two sequels is that the most interesting character dies in the first one. Yeah. The two sequels are called uh, Four Wives and Four Mothers. You can guess what they're about. And uh, <laughs> they they then get the most of that cast back together. The Lane sisters, uh, John Garfield and Claude Rains among them to uh, make a totally different movie called Courageous, I was going to which,
0: ask you. Had you seen which
1: that? I, which is a better, it's a better and more interesting. It's still not great, but it's a better okay. and more interesting movie. And that one, um uh the mother is going to remarry after having been abandoned by her kind of sm- smooth-talking con artist husband that okay. they all sort of assume is dead. And then that smooth-talking con artist husband is played by Claude Rains returns unexpectedly and comes back into their lives. And one of them is engaged to a guy played by John Garfield. And it's sort you sort of realize, and they realize over the course of the film, that John Garfield is a lot more like Claude Rains's character, that he actually has this kind of urge to see the world and to be an adventurer. He doesn't really want to settle down and have a domestic life. And so the thing they do at the end of the movie, they're kind of moving act of generosity at the end is to leave. Mm-hmm. Claude Rains realizes that he should let his wife, you know, get married to this other man. And John Garfield realizes he should leave this nice woman alone so that she can marry the, the you know, the daughter so that she can marry the right guy. And they like leave on a boat together in this kind of very bromantic, you know, hey, let's go see the world <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so so it's interesting because. John Garfield had a method background. John Garfield was a member of the group theater. He's in the original productions of Awake and Sing and Golden Boy. He had studied with Lee Strasberg and Bobby Lewis and Sanford Meisner, who were sort of three of the core acting teachers in the, in the group. Um, and he, he, uh, quit the group because he had been, um, not given a a leading role that he was promised. And so he quits the group and he goes out West. His wife is pregnant. They need to, Mm. he needs to make some money. So he goes to California and he really is the first method movie star. People think it's Brando, but it's not. Um, uh, among other things, Brando didn't call himself a method actor. He didn't like Lee Strasberg. We can get into mm-hmm. that later. Um, whereas John Garfield did. But also, John Garfield's much earlier. 38 is much earlier. And so, you know, Garfield is usually portrayed as kind of a transitional figure from old school Hollywood acting to the new school of Hollywood acting the Clift and Brando and Dean yeah. and Paul Newman and stuff would usher in but the argument I'm making in the book is no 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 he is already the change he's already as good as those guys his performances are as important and we forget because he died young in you know 53. we forget what a huge 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 star he was he was unbelievably famous, you know, like 10,000 people came to mourn him at his funeral. You know, he was a, he was a huge deal. And I don't think without him, we would actually have the rest of that revolution because he really proved it was possible.
0: Yeah. It is such a naturalistic performance. And when I was watching it, I was just thinking, boy, this is before Clift and Dean and Brando. And I had seen this film, but it had been years. And when I read about it again, in your book, I was realizing, yes, that's right. It was kind of the prototypical rebellious, you know, sexy, dangerous role that he is playing. Totally. And he's great. I mean, they remade this movie. They changed it a little bit. I think the Sinatra character lives at the end of young at heart. And that, that was not a really good uh, version of this. I, I preferred this version but i mean he is amazing in it i read he kind of modeled the uh troubled musician character a little bit on oscar levant i also heard that like errol flynn was supposed to play his uh friend character but it wasn't a part that Flynn really responded to and I kind of wondered had he been in it if he had would have pulled focus and they would have you know minimized the Garfield character a little bit but Garfield is so good he was nominated for an Oscar for it National Board of Review named it him one of the best actors of the year it's impossible to yeah overstate how important I think that his performance in the school of acting or the field and also just how this hit back then. I love uh, Garfield. I think one of my favorite performances he ever did was in, uh, he ran all the way, which you talk about in your book. Yeah.
1: his final movie. Yeah. Uh, that That's an incredible performance too. I mean, you know, um, It's interesting to watch those two back to back because you get the beginning and the end, you know, yeah. and he made a lot of movies in between them and a lot of them are bad. But yes. there's there. <laughs> I mean, everyone, they've worked those actors so hard back then. And, mm-hmm. you know, like a lot of the everyone made a lot of bad movies. He has the same success oh, rate as most other actors of the period. Yeah. But, you know, he has a handful of 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 good Uh, you know, of good to great ones, like, um, humoresque, the postman always rings twice, body and soul force of evil, The breaking point, which I think is a total work of genius. Uh, and he ran all the way is truly incredible. It is, you know, he's really going through it in his personal life at the time because of HUAC, because his wife had been a communist. And so, you know, he, he was in the process of being blacklisted, essentially, you know, his career was being destroyed um really actively and you know he died not that long after that movie. that movie sort of didn't come out i mean it was sort of buried um and rediscovered later but you know it, the the hunted trapped feeling that character is going through in that movie, um, for those of you who haven't seen it, which is probably most of you, you know, he plays a thief <laughs> who kind of winds up taking this family hostage while he's running from the cops, uh, including Shelley Winters, who he has this, you know, sort of they do sort of fall in love, but she's yeah. also terrified of him. I mean, it's a very emotionally complicated film. Um, Shelley Winters says in her second memoir, Shelley, too, which is a delightfully deranged book, if you've never read it, that, um, no. you know, he really was coming unglued on set he was drinking heavily he was he was you know and you can see it you can see that he is really identifying with how trapped and hunted and in trouble that character is i think
0: yeah it is such a powerful performance in my pandemic movie club i chose it because i don't think any of the people had seen it in my group and i was like man it's so powerful It's not
1: streamable, isn't it? Is it streamable? I think you have to buy it. I had to buy it.
0: Yeah, I had an MP4 I shared, but uh, yeah, it is a hard one to find for sure. And some of the other films that you mentioned, uh, towards the end of his career, I don't know a hundred percent if I saw and they either forgot or it's been a while, but yeah, I was making quite the list of movies as I was reading this book. So I want to thank you for that.
1: Oh, good. I'm glad. You know, if you're if you're listening to this and you want to check out John Garfield, I know I listed them very quickly, but um, a, a couple of the fun ones, I, I think, Humoresque, which is a gender flipped A Star Is Born, where he's the musical protege and Joan Crawford is the alcoholic. Uh, older person yes, who discovers I have seen him. That one, yeah. Uh also has an amazing, amazing performance from Oscar Levant. Oscar Levant is in it as this kind of gay sidekick. Okay. Um, is that that movie is totally great. Um, The Breaking Point, which Criterion did an edition of, is an amazing film. It's um
0: that one I same, can't remember if I saw. So that's it's the, the same one.
1: story as to have and have not, actually. Okay. It's based on the same Hemingway story. Um uh, it's, it's, it's really, it's a great sort of very hard boiled, uh, noir. Um, he made two movies with an independent studio, uh, both involving Abe Polanski. One was written by him. One was written and directed by him body and soul, which is a boxing picture. Uh, Canada Lee is in it. The cinematography is by James Wong Howe. It has incredibly inventive boxing cinematography that's influential on particularly Raging Bull. But sort of every boxing film that came after. Uh, and Force of Evil, which is about a, a, a guy who wants to fix the numbers racket in his town. Mm, and the writing yes. almost feels like iambic pentameter or something. It's really fascinating. He made a lot of great movies, and he's, he's definitely someone worth checking out.
0: For sure. Well, next up, we have a film that was completely new to me, the 1960 period drama Wild River, which was directed by actor studio co-founder Elia Kazan, written by his East of Eden screenwriter Paul Osborne, based on or inspired by two different novels and is centered on Montgomery Cliffs' idealistic Tennessee Valley Authority employee who's in charge of trying to clear the land owned by headstrong Garth Island matriarch Joe Van Fleet for a brand new hydroelectric dam in 1937, co-starring Lee Remick as Van Fleet's granddaughter, a young widowed mother set to marry an older man she doesn't love when she falls for Clift. Admittedly, I did struggle occasionally in this one at times with its pacing and some of Kazan's choices as a filmmaker might work a little better on the stage, but it's still really compelling. The acting to me is why this one works as well as it does especially with joe van fleet who commands the audience's attention and dominates Clift most memorably when she proves why she doesn't feel that he has the right to push her off the land that she loves by trying to buy her worker's beloved dog it's a really good scene reportedly one of kazan's all-time favorite films that he ever made i would love to hear your thoughts on this one
1: uh yeah, although wait, I, I have to ask, how had you seen outside of East of Eden, had you seen Joe Van Fleet and anything else?
0: You know, I can't remember i'd have to look at her filmography yeah because
1: yeah, yeah. she doesn't but i mean she's not an actor we were like oh yeah joe van fleet's in it or, or you yeah know, yeah she isn't it,
0: a name I mean, that you
1: yeah you know one of the reasons why i wanted to, you to watch this is to talk about joe van fleet because even though we should get to montgomery cliff because it's post car accident montgomery cliff yes. to me it's the best of his post car accident performances but um Rose so the tattoo, thing, I
0: think, is the only oh other God, one. Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, Joe Van Fleet's really fascinating because her performance in this movie is, I think, breathtaking. I mean, it's one of the yes. best screen performances, you know, uh, of that of its decade at least. It's Shakespearean in its yeah. size and power. You know, when I was done with it, I was like, Joe Van Fleet should have played King Lear. Um, oh, jo, that's she a was good only,
0: observation. She was yeah. only
1: forty years old. She's playing an eighty-year-old woman in it. You know, <laughs> she became a well-known actress kazan writes about this in his memoir she became a well-known actress when she was about 40 years old thanks to east of eden and wild river and a couple of other projects Mm -hmm. and of course the problem is There's actually no roles for women. There's no good roles for a 45-year-old woman. You know, at the end of your life, you get good roles. At the beginning of your career, you get good roles. But particularly for women, there's sort of very little that's interesting for for middle-aged women. And it really wrecked her. It wrecked her psychologically. She became very difficult to work with. She was sort of very angry, he said, you know, a lot of the time. Because she knew that her incredible talents were being wasted, you Mm -hmm. know. And I think if you see Wild River, you're sort of like, why isn't she in everything? Yeah. She's so incredible. I mean, she, you know, it's an interesting thing. Kazan, I love this movie. Um, I do think that you can see if you know the rest of Kazan's movies, that he was a more talented filmmaker in black and white than in color you know i think his mm-hmm. black and white films are better than his color films and you can see yeah. him sort of trying to figure that out you know
0: a little um, bit but, yes
1: yeah but i think that um i think that it's a it's I, I i love this movie part of what i think is so interesting about it is that the source material and the original screenplay are very pro the tva and the montgomery Clift character. that's
0: what i was reading yeah
1: and um kazan who you know, Kazan named named a hueck, and I'm not going to yes. excuse that. But he was mm-hmm. never exactly a right winger. You know, he was still no, no. a left, a, a liberal. You know, at least a liberal. And you know, face in the crowd is a great leftist film and blah blah oh, blah. Masterpiece. But he, yeah, but he was. What he was, was an individualist. He didn't Mm -hmm. like being told what to do. He didn't like being in anyone else's control. And actually you can see over the course of his career, his career is really about taking greater and greater individual control over his projects until you get to America, America where he's writing and directing it and it's autobiographical or it's about his uncle and all that sort of stuff. He wanted to be, I think he called it the source that everything came from. That's really what he wanted. And so he had come by the time they were making the movie, he really sympathizes with Joe Van Fleet's character, even though the material of the film is very sympathetic to uh, Montgomery Clift's Chuck Glover, who's the the TVA Valley Man trying to clear the land so they can put a dam up and flood this other area and all this other New Deal stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think
1: that gives the movie a really interesting charge, or there's a really interesting kind of dialectic to it, where you know the sympathy is sort of equal on both sides. Um, that's what
0: makes it so powerful and it makes
1: it so powerful and the other thing and he really uses the actors well kazan's whole thing you know he didn't do a lot of sense memory exercises with his actors Hmm. that was not his deal what he did was he tried to cast people who had something in common with the characters and then he tried to kind of learn everything he could about the the actors and then he tried to gently and not maliciously but manipulate them into sort of drawing the connections on their own and not realizing he had done it. And then he would.
0: Yeah. Julie sort of Harris talked in. about that quite a bit. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah. Carl Malden says this thing where he was like, I mean, he was, he was like a wizard, you know, it's like, he yeah. didn't even realize he was doing it and suddenly it was happening. Um, And so he does a really brilliant thing in casting Montgomery Clift in this movie, because there mm-hmm. is just something off putting about post-car crash Montgomery Cliff on screen. His face doesn't look exactly like his face anymore. Mm Cliff had sort of lost that beautiful ease he had. You know, he was such an easygoing minimalist of an actor where he just didn't seem like even the camera was looking at him. And he just lost that ability, became much more self-conscious. And he just uses it so well. Uh, Mm -hmm. For Chuck Glover, where Chuck Glover is just a really awkward. You're like, there's something wrong with that guy. He has trouble relating to other people. And it's not anything in the text. It's Montgomery Cliff's performance and how the townspeople react to him. You're like, this is the exact wrong person to send into this situation, which is Mm -hmm. sort of what becomes what the movie is about.
0: Yeah. It's a vulnerable role where he doesn't quite fit in. And I think it it makes the most out of his physicality and also what he was going through. When I was reading more about it, uh, there was an article on the TCM website that was interesting. It talked to, about Kazan feeling with Jovan Fleet that she would eat Clift alive. And that is exactly yeah. what he wanted her to do. And boy, does she ever, just like with Remick, that he wanted her to be the more sexually experienced one and play off of uh, Montgomery Clift's sexual uncertainty or his ambivalence. And that comes through as well. Clift is really good. You know, it is interesting because you do remember like a place in the sun and just how uh, vulnerable and how Easily, he would be able to tap into all of these aspects with emotion. And now there is sort of a mask uh, coming off after the the car accident. Also, just what he was going through emotionally. I had recently watched Karina Longworth recommended The Young Lions and for an episode that we did recently on uh, Dean Martin. And that was the first time I had seen that film. So it was cool to see that and then watch this to see post car crash clipped and these choices that he was making and also just these collaborations that he had and how it used what he was going through in real life to great effect, I think
1: yeah i i agree i agree and you know it's also worth saying that um you know it, it's the in terms of the method you know it's all over this movie kazan is one of the founders of the Actor yes. studio lee remick and joe van fleet were both members of the Actor studio montgomery clift was one of the founding members of the Actor studio he drifted away from it once lee strasberg took it over mm-hmm. um montgomery Clift's sort of original uh, yeah, Montgomery Cliff's apprenticeship was with Lunt and Fontaine. He was part of their um, acting, you know, he acted with them on Broadway, but then he also was trained by Bobby Lewis, who was a member of the group theater. His, his, um, his uh, Cliff's acting coach, Mira uh, Rostova was in that production as well and worked with, so his whole background is in Stanislavski as well. So Stanislavski is all over this movie. It's a movie that kind of couldn't <laughs> exist, you know, it really couldn't exist without it uh, as well.
0: Yeah, perfect. No, I was so glad to have seen this one. Well, released one year after Wild River, we have our next film featuring another strong trio of tremendous talents in Paul Newman, his wife, Joanne Woodward, and Sidney Poitier, who star in 1961's Largely Overlooked. Black and White beat Gen-like film about two expatriate Jazz musicians in Paris who find themselves falling for two American beauties on holiday and become torn about whether they should stay abroad or go back in Paris blues. Directed by Martin Ritt, who would make six films with Paul Newman, including Ombre and Hud. This was the second of their collaborations after their auspicious first one in The Long, Hot Summer, which also co-starred Woodward. Based on the novel by Harold Flender, Paris Blues, which boasts a knockout soundtrack of jazz standards like Mood Indigo and performances with Louis Armstrong, who also appears, it co-stars the lovely Diane Carroll as well. Although, according to Poitier, the filmmakers chickened out about letting the intended interracial romances play out on screen, and they went down instead predictable race lines, much to his chagrin. An impressive, daring film about modern sexual mores that offers some surprises and how it chooses to reveal information about its characters and when. I hadn't seen it in a while, but I really liked revisiting it. So what did you think of Paris Blues?
1: Well, first of all, I love Martin Ritt. I just think Martin Ritt is an underappreciated American master. Oh, I'm so glad that you know um. I hope that anything I can do to bring more attention to Martin Ritt, I I will do. Yes. Martin Ritt also comes out of this lineage. He was a stage manager with the Group Theater. He was a big mover and shaker at the Actors Studio. He was doing uh, live TV drama, like a lot of those folks. Uh, his career got kind of derailed by the blacklist, and then he picks mm-hmm. it back up. And sure enough, you know, Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward, Sidney Poitier, all Actors Studio members, right? Yeah. Um, you know, he's he's really involved with bringing the studio and its approach to film, and and I think there's often a, a fascinating level of realism that he reaches in his movies you know that particularly in norma ray which is not one that we're talking about because you can't stream it but you know norma ray uh you know there's no non-diegetic music in it every cast member is a member of the actor studio it's you know very hyper real anyway
0: I, I didn't know all that this, that's great yeah yeah <laughs> such a good movie i
1: th- oh my god yeah and hud hud is a brilliant movie yes uh spy who came in from the cold is a great movie oh, you know, he has a real great um, film. i i know that probably you know recommending a woody allen movie is not great but the front is a really good movie it is. you know with woody yeah. allen and zero mustel um uh anyway i just think martin ritt is a total master and i think this movie um uh is it should be less overlooked than it is. You know, it's not yeah. like the greatest movie of all time, but it's a really well made, complicated, thematically rich, and also unbelievably charming and fun to watch. Film, you know, really the scene is. where Louis Armstrong crashes Paul Newman. Paul Newman plays a jazz composer, uh, uh a musician, and Louis Armstrong is Wild Man Moore. You know, he's basically playing yes. Louis Armstrong, but the character's name is Wild Man Moore. And there's a part where he brings his whole band to crash one of Paul Newman's gigs, and they have a jazz off, you know, together. Yeah. And it is, uh, the, the music they're actually playing is from, um, the Count basie and Duke Ellington album. Uh, that's it's actually,
0: yeah, Duke piano. I mean, yeah, God. yeah. And,
1: um, uh, but you know, it, it just, it just makes me smile watching this movie just makes me so happy. It's also a really interesting historical artifact because of the relationship of Paris to the United States. You have, um, a white expat and a black expat in the United Mm -hmm. States who have this differing relationships about going home. And, you know, you think about Baldwin's writing about Paris in this time period and you know, all, like just what Paris was and how it means something different to white people and black people, even a white person, and black person were are both doing jazz, is really fascinating. I do think that, you know, also Martin Ritt directs this and Edge of the City, which are two of the only movies I've seen where like Sidney Poitier gets to have fun prior to when Sidney Poitier yeah. begins directing oh, himself. Edge in of the films. City
0: is a good film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah.
1: Um, and so it's just refreshing to see Sidney Poitier cut loose a little bit. Um,
0: yes. He had to play the saint so much. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, yep. he does get burdened by the end of the movie where like you are a black man. And so you must return to America yeah. to help uplift <laughs> your race and give a you know,
0: speech. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 You know, there is all that stuff that the movie sort of ends up in, which I think foreshadows what's going on in Poitier's career. Um, mm-hmm. But I just love this movie. I just, it brings such a smile uh, uh, to my face. And it's also really sexy. It's really, it I is. saw that,
0: huh. that,
1: that gif that you posted on Twitter of uh, Paul Newman and Sydney Poitier kind of looking at each other. Yes. You know, it's,
0: <laughs> and, and it's, and
1: it's got real lovers, right? Poitier yeah. and Diane Carroll eventually were, yeah. I mean, they were, they had, didn't they have an illegitimate child? Not an illegitimate, I shouldn't say that, I I say that
0: again. Platte and Diane. that, but they had had that fling, yeah. Yeah,
1: um, you know, Poitier and Diane Carol had a long-standing, uh, shall we say, extramarital relationship with one yep. another. Um, and uh Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward were married. So, you know, th- there's a real charge to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like it. I think there's a lot of ways that it could have been quaint and kind of antiquated, and it doesn't feel that way to me.
0: No, I agree with you. I think a lot of people go in thinking that it's just going to be mainly about the guys. But I found the really most fascinating character to me was Joanne Woodwards. Because at first, when you meet her, you assume she's, you know, like, uh, pure as the driven snow, just this woman who's going to you know, develop a crush. And she definitely wants to sleep with Paul Newman, of course, and develop a crush and just have a fling with this great looking jazz artist while she's in Paris. And then it's not until like the morning after when you think, Oh, she slept with the wrong guy or what is she doing that you realize, no, she was married and she's not married anymore. She's a mother. It's just very uh, frank about that. And I love that it was, no, she's a sexually liberated woman. And I think uh, Joanne Woodward got to play a lot of different uh, sides of a character there that you wouldn't normally expect in the early 60s. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's a movie that has unexpected depth to me. Yeah. You know, Um, I also think it's sort of an example. It's fun to see Paul Newman do the tormented Brando-esque methods
0: of clothing. It is, yeah.
1: Because he sort of stops doing that not that long after that because, you know, in HUD and The Hustler, and, you know, he becomes much more, the yes. solid leading man you know mm-hmm. um, I love those movies it's no knocking again, but it's fun to watch him like do it and do it well because I think he's yeah. so bad at it and cat on a hot tin roof which I find almost unwatchably terrible uh, See, now, uh,
0: that one when I was reading your thoughts on it I was like oh my goodness because that was the film that made me a huge Paul Newman person oh, really I, yeah. I just I think it's so <laughs> that
1: one I think is too stagey you know and gotcha. too, uh, yeah but, yeah um, but,
0: no it uh, is it is but yeah his <laughs> accent
1: is like a little regrettable and i don't know it, <laughs> yeah. but the um but you know he's so good at it in this mm-hmm. you're like this guy really is he's just gonna wreck his whole life because the only thing he cares about is artistic greatness and it's just unclear whether he's got it in it and this is gonna he's never yes. gonna be able i thought to be that was a good question gonna,
0: you know yeah. yeah 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 we never
1: really learn whether mm-hmm. you know what it what that what that means whether he'll achieve that thing um also the location photography you know, the other thing is that like, it's, it's shot in Paris, you know, like if you want to see it, so you get to see Paris during that time. I I just think it's, it's a movie really worth watching if you haven't seen it and and revisiting, if you don't remember it.
0: Yes, absolutely. And it, you brought up, you know, he's basically doing sort of a Brando-esque role. It kind of reminded me of like, it's the opposite of something like left-handed gun, which was made after yeah. James Dean died. And that one is, It's too, too much for me to watch. That's way too much like him (laughs) doing Dean essentially. And so this was more of a natural style of performance for Newman in a mode that he kind of did evolve out of when he got into like making you know butch and sundance essentially so yeah it's really cool but jumping ahead 21 years we have our final film today and our first biopic of the bunch featuring a strong performance by jessica lang as the talented intelligent popular depression era actress Frances farmer whose life and career was derailed in the 1930s due to mental illness director graham clifford's ambitiously messy *Frances* is what my friend blake howard might call too much movie or as Isaac surmised in a funny DM, it's a lot still (laughs) it's well worth discussing, not only because it, boasts a great turn by method acting legend kim stanley as well as isaac had brought up along with uh, lang she scored an oscar nomination for her role but also because francis farmer was involved with a number of the figures in isaac's book including Clifford Odets, the group theater so i think i'm gonna let you take it away on this one
1: yeah i mean it's it's interesting because i i think this is a movie that's impossible to recommend, really. Do you know what I mean? In some yeah. ways, I needed someone else to have seen it. So when you were like, mm-hmm. recommend movies you're gonna watch, I was like, ah, ha. ha.
0: Um uh, so sorry <laughs> I, I didn't tell you that. Since beforehand. childhood, yeah. yeah.
1: It's yeah. it's impossible to recommend both because actually I think the parts of it that are dealing with the the traumas of farmer's life, or I should say the alleged traumas, because yeah. all of that stuff is yeah. disputed. And I think. Quite a bit of it is likely untrue, but let's just say that the alleged, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, Maybe we can talk about the providence of the film later, but you know, (laughs) a lot of, um, it's just also not a well-directed movie. I mean, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I actually think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in the screenplay, um, mm-hmm. which among has a final polish by Nick Kazan, uh, Aaliyah Kazan's son, um, uh, who also wrote...
0: Linking uh, it uh, all Rosal together. Fortune. Yeah, yes. yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, he knew Harold Klerman. So the fact that Harold Klerman is a character in it, I think, is really fascinating. Um it's got a lot of interesting stuff It connects to the story of the method deeply because Francis Farmer was in Golden Boy and had a, uh, an affair with Clifford Odets and the group theater, which is where the method originates. And uh, they really screwed her over in a sort of unbelievably yeah. cruel way. Um, uh, Jessica Lang is amazing in it. Kim Stanley is. is incredible mm-hmm. in it. Um, it's one of the few places where you can actually see Kim Stanley who was regarded in the mid 20th century as the greatest living American actress, but she was almost entirely on stage. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: she, there's a lot about her in the book, in my book. Yes. Um, but it's, it, it, it's a mess and it's shot like a not great TV movie. Like the, the camera work is, it's really stodgy. It's Mm -hmm. got that, you know, down home harmonica music, (laughs) <laughs> Sam Shepard is weirdly disaffected. I mean, it yeah, seems like he's, he's not almost interested an
0: afterthought basically. Yeah. yeah. And,
1: you know, he's a good actor, but it seems he like is. he just did not care about the movie. It just no. feels like he's phoning it in. He mm-hmm. has terrible voiceover stuff that he has to do to link the movie together because the movie was originally supposed to be about half an hour longer. Um, and so yeah. he's sort of doing this stitch job and the voiceover. So it's very hard to recommend unless again, If you're like a connoisseur of American acting or if you love Jessica Lange, for example, I Mm -hmm. mean, it's an amazing performance. But I do think it raises a question of maybe this is a taste question that I was interested to get your thoughts on, Jen, because, you know, she really goes for it. Francis Farmer struggled very deeply with mental illness and
0: alcoholism Mm -hmm.
1: and. Lang really goes for it. It is in some ways a tasteless performance. She is not trying to make it. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I think, you know, the scenes where Francis Farmer is having a mental breakdown are almost impossible to watch because it really does feel like you're watching someone have it. There's nothing. They're not doing anything to make it palatable for Mm -hmm. you. And I was wondering what you thought of that choice because like should it have been made more palatable you know or or do you do you think that that works you know is it worth going that far for a movie that's kind of not that great or i, I was just wondering how you thought about that while you were watching the movie
0: yeah, it's hard because I had seen Jessica Lange talk about it in the past and read some interviews where she was talking about making the film. She was starting to feel as manipulated as uh, Frances Farmer was, especially her scene with the breakdown of the police storm in the bathroom where she's While nude. Well, she's fully naked. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that took like several days to shoot and uh so she really had a hard time so for me it's hard to separate like her experience with that and also the fact that this is you know uh, it was based on i guess like a fictional bio or something and i mean there are different schools of thought on that i have a few writer friends who are like well if you want to know the truth read a book don't watch the movie like it's not up to them but i think you know what what you're asking your lead actress to do or put herself through. Uh, And for what is, is a valid question. And yeah, I'm conflicted on it with this one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's interesting because I think that, you know, one of the complaints made against the method is this taste question right is like you know what what the actor's doing still has to fit into what the greater production or film is doing Mm -hmm. it can't all be totally out of whack because the actor wants to be as realistic about the emotional territory as possible and i think you can see both sides of that in this film do you know what i mean because it really is like it those scenes are really hard to watch and just to address it for you know the um there is a novelized biography of francis farmer that Mm -hmm. much of the movie is based on and the actor the uh, the the guy who wrote the book got screwed out of the royalties and sued and lost um you know and all this stuff and then there's also a memoir that francis farmer wrote that alleged a lot of abuse when she was in a in an asylum Mm -hmm. um and all of that stuff has been disputed uh, that's in that memoir it may very well have been ghostwritten by a friend of hers for money you know and borne no relationship to her uh actual experience one of the things that allegedly happened that is in the movie is that she was lobotomized um yes and there is no evidence that that ever occurred. They kept records. I, I read up on this. They kept records because lobotomies were very that. rare. Yeah. Yeah. Lobotomies were very rare at that time. You know, it was a new experimental procedure. And so they kept records at that asylum of all the lobotomies they gave. Them. There's no record they gave one to her. So, you know, there's a, there's a big question about how much of the last, say, 30 to 45 minutes of the movie is really um, mm-hmm. accurate. But weirdly, you know, all the terrible stuff about her in the group theater is totally accurate. They really did you know, fire her because yeah. the London production of Golden Boy was being underwritten by an actress who wanted to play the part. Clifford Odette's really did break off this intense love affair they had with a hastily written note um, when his wife came back into town. I mean, they they really did use her and yeah. kind of chew her up and, and spit her out. That part is definitely true.
0: Yeah, that whole scene reminded me of, you know, from Sex in the City with the post-it where she gets yeah. dumped on a post-it. It's like I'm Clifford not I'm sorry. Eggs- I can't burger. Yeah. Yes. You know, I think also why this was an interesting one to watch is the new, um, Andrew Dominic movie blonde based on Joyce Carol Oates is going to be, uh, you know, that's oh, yeah. a novelized version of somebody's life as well. So I think people might be starting to take a look at some of these biopics. And so I'm sure Francis will be back in the discussion, uh, again soon, maybe.
1: Yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And blonde is about Marilyn Monroe,
0: right? yes so that's yep. interesting
1: because you know the movie that that this reminds me a lot of which I I didn't I what I decided I wanted to get us out of the 60s so we didn't do it uh, it's also only available on DVD is The Goddess which is um, a movie that follows a very similar trajectory to Frances and stars Kim Stanley a much you know at the beginning of her career so in the early okay. 60s and that is a lightly fictionalized, well it's fictionalized a lot but it is based on and, and very open kind of based on the life of Marilyn Monroe, who was still alive when it was made, uh, and is written by Patty Shaevsky and oh, stars wow. Kim Stanley. I need so to you see get,
0: that. <laughs>
1: yeah. So if you want to see Kim Stanley have a lot of breakdowns, uh, that's that's the movie <laughs> to watch. You know, um Kim Stanley, I think is incredible in this movie. Um, You can sort of get a sense. It's not a large role, but you can get a sense of how much power she really brought. You know, I've talked to people who worked with her and they were like, yeah, when you were in the room with her, there was just a power that radiated out of her that was sort of almost difficult to put into words. Mm -hmm. Kim Stanley is, you know, in the mid 20th century, she's it. She's starring on Broadway. She's starring in live. She is the queen of live TV drama. She's really considered the greatest actress alive. Um, She had a very serious drinking problem. She had very serious mental health struggles. And after being in a production of three sisters directed by Lee Strasberg, her stage career ends. She actually moves out West and becomes an acting teacher and, you know, sort of descends into alcoholism, but she has this late life comeback of which Francis is part of where she reemerges in New York as an acting teacher she keeps talking about how she's going to act on stage again but it never happens uh, and she acts in the right stuff and Francis and she does a TV film of cat on the hot tin roof with Jessica Lang
0: oh, uh, and wow. then she kind of yeah.
1: disappears again she decides that she wants to quit acting and she goes back out West and becomes an acting teacher again and, and dies uh, sometime after that so she has a really fascinating career where she never on Green, she's never really given the chance to live up to her her full potential but you can really see it in Frances. it's sort of one of the great what ifs you know what if kim stanley had had the career she deserved
0: yeah it is a tremendous performance another film that i think this would be an interesting double feature with though i do want to see the goddess now but it's sweet dreams which came out uh three years that later one. that is jessica lang playing patsy klein and patsy oh, wow. had a a good relationship with her mother but a close relationship so you have a woman and her mother two films uh that were biopics with jessica lang that's a better film it's also stars at Harris. It's it's very well done, John Goodman. Oh cool. To um check out. yeah, but if you watch these back to back, they kind of had Jessica Lang in biopic territory there for a while. Yeah, which yeah, totally. now we have again, you know, it's it's where the Oscars are essentially. But yeah. um, but yeah, I was glad to revisit this. And I know that's all the ones that we had time for today, but I did give you that really daunting task as someone who loves great screen acting to just choose only a few for us to focus on so for anyone listening who in addition of course knows they need to pick up the book and make a list of their own but are there any other movies off the top of your head that great roles that you really want to recommend people check out
1: oh yeah well i mean obviously there's the biggies like um streetcar named desire yes. on the waterfront, The <laughs> godfather the graduate yeah uh bonnie and clyde you know there there are those there are those biggies um and you really you know you've if you're listening to this if you follow this podcast you've probably seen those movies yes but if you haven't <laughs> you know you know go go watch them again i actually have a whole i have a whole spreadsheet so just hold on one sec while oh, i uh, cool. look this look this up um you know, because we're we're doing a we're doing a film series uh, uh, nice. uh, at BAM and on TCM and on the Criterion Channel um, starting this summer, dedicated oh, that's to so exciting. the method. So. Um, you know, we made a spreadsheet with like a gajillion movies on it. So I've already talked about the the John Garfield ones. Of course, you should absolutely look up the original TV film of Marty starring Rod yes. Steiger, which you can watch on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. His performance is amazing. And follow that up with The Pawn Broker,
0: Oh, remarkable one. film yeah uh,
1: unbelievable um what rod steiger does stuff in that movie that it's just like i don't know how an actor does it it's mm-hmm. also directed by sydney lumet so it has deep ties yeah and um i think jack nicholson's 70s work is underappreciated mm-hmm. in this conversation particularly uh um five easy pieces
0: my favorite uh, yep
1: is that your favorite that's your favorite one movie. one of or my favorite, favorite
0: nicholsons, nicholson's.
1: yeah well and you know who you know the g- actor who plays his dad in that bill chally is a is a was a member of the group so there's also another sort of closing Ooh, of the okay. circle of influence there um jack nicholson studied the method with martin landau he was not a member of the actor studio okay. He was trained by martin landau who studied with lee Strasberg. um and uh uh oh my god what is it called the one with um randy quaid and the where they're marines the
0: last the, detail the last yes detail. i just Sorry. covered How did that, that? i did by? an ashby episode and oh oh.
1: you did what ashby did i love ashby so you did shampoo we did
0: all the 70s ashby's except for bound for glory yeah got it
1: got it but you know shampoo and the last detail are incredible i mean you know i could go on and on about warren Beatty i think reds is one of the most important uh movies Uh, of all time another favorite nicholson
0: performance is in reds yes
1: that might that's his best post 70s performance Mm -hmm. i think um of course splendor in the grass and yeah. uh wanda if you've never seen wanda barbara Loden's oh, film yes is incredible um hud uh um let's see A- and you know i absolutely you know th- this is another one you have to get on dvd but uh martin ritz norma ray uh starring mm-hmm. sally field and ron liebman is is absolutely incredible um and I'm going to recommend a real weird one, but okay. it's made by a mover and shaker at the actor's studio. The great documentary filmmaker, William Greaves did this very strange movie that's on criterion channel. I think right now and gets, you know, uh, called Symbiopsychotaxoplasm Take one. And it's sort I've of indescribable. Yeah, it's indescribable, and it's a very experimental documentary. It couldn't be more experimental, but it also okay. cannot exist without the method. It is a weird, sort of bizarro world way of getting at the same questions that the method is getting at. So there's a long list of ones to start with. My my spreadsheet actually has 120 movies on it, but there's there's okay. a handful of ones to to watch. Um, uh, yeah, and I think you'll find some really fun stuff if you do.
0: Oh, well, I want to thank you so much. I learned a ton from your thank book, you. of course, and just in conversation with you, Isaac. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this. What a real pleasure. It was, this great. was
1: such a pleasure to do. Thank you, Jen, so much. Thank for
0: having you. Me. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals. filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link the show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by jason shaw and is available in the free music archive you can also reach me or interact with watch with jen anytime on twitter either at film intuition or our watch with jen account as well well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and Film Intuition on social media and Letterboxed, And this is Watch with Jen.